Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Black Mentel Village Podcast, Episode 7, Boys Don't Cry. You gonna get the fuck out there, and you gonna beat them niggas the fuck up, because if you don't beat them the fuck up, I'm gonna whoop your fucking ass. Fuck what your mother said. I told you get out there and do what the fuck you gotta do. I ain't raising no punk ass shit up in here. My daddy told me put some bass in your voice. Use a black man. The street won't give you no choice. If you gon' stand a chance, gotta be ready for everything that they throwing out. If a nigga act out of pocket, then hit him in the mouth. I was raised to be a soldier, now I'm older. Post-traumatic stress from my youth, now that I'm older. Haunt me like the ghost, some demons you never shake. Sleeping with the enemy, thinking that you will wake. I'm surprised I survived half the shit that I did. I thank God that I don't look the way that I live. Half of my friends is fucked up with fucked up kids. That ain't the way that I get down. I want to live. Listen, sick of apologizing for who I want to be. Walking in your true face, something the niggas want to see. You wanted to be one way, but how it's going to be. One of us going to have to die, and it won't be me. I don't know how to be fake. That's that give and take. me is not realistic when you from a city you crack and gun ballistics they want me to crumble fuck being humble i'm showing out stepped off the porch and never went back to mommy house so you'll never see no tears in my eyes my father ain't raised no pucks and boys don't cry Like boys like Drake Till I found out that being like skin wouldn't save me no case 
see no tears in my eyes. My mother ain't raised no punks, bitch, and boys don't cry. This month's Sankofa Spotlight is on Marsha P. Johnson. Marsha P. Johnson stood at the center of New York City's gay liberation movement for nearly 25 years. But LGBTQ rights weren't her only cause. She was on the front lines of protests against oppressive policing. She helped found one of the country's first safe spaces for transgender and homeless youth. And she advocated tirelessly on behalf of sex workers, prisoners, and people with HIV AIDS. All while draped in dashing outfits and flower headpieces and armed, people who knew her say with a vibrant smile. The nobody from Nowheresville, as she described herself in a 1992 interview, moved to New York City from her hometown of Elizabeth, New Jersey, with nothing but $15 in her pocket. That's when she adopted the name Marsha P. Johnson. The P, she told people, stuff for pay it no mind. Johnson was a drag performer and sex worker. She, she was often homeless and lived with mental illness. Her body was found in the Hudson River in 1992 and the circumstances of her death remained unclear. New York police ruled the death a suicide and didn't investigate. She was remembered as one of the most significant activists for transgender rights. Although the term transgender wasn't commonly used during her lifetime. Johnson identified as a transvestite, gay and a drag queen, and used she, her pronouns. She was the ultimate survivor, said Elle Hearns, a human rights activist who created an institute bearing Johnson's name. I don't think Marsha has left anything behind beside the permission for us all to be free. Johnson played a key role in the uprising that began on June 28th, 1963 at the Stonewall Inn in New York's Greenwich Village after police raided the gay bar and patrons fought back. Protests followed over the next six days. We were thrown over cars and, and screaming in the middle of the street because we were so upset because they closed that place, Johnson told historian Eric Marcus in 1989. We were just saying no more police brutality and we had enough of police harassment in the village and other places. The first anniversary of the protest prompted the first gay pride parade in 1970. Johnson, alongside her friend Sylvia Rivera, emerged from the clashes as leaders in the nascent gay liberation movement. They created the first LGBT youth shelter in North America and the first organization in the United States led by trans women of color, according to the Global Network of Sex Work Projects. Johnson was also an AIDS activist associated with the group ACT UP until her death. There is a monument currently in New York for Marsha P. Johnson, Arsene Kofa Spotlight Activist of the Month. So welcome to the Black Mintel Village podcast, episode seven. 
We have a very, very special guest with us today. Rapper, hip-hop artist. Just came out with a very, very, very powerful project, The Ballad of Omar. It's our first uh, person who we've interviewed outside of the St. Louis region. DDM, a.k.a. Dapper Dan Midas. What's going on? What's going on? How you feeling? Great, 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 man. Really excited to have the opportunity to break down this album with you and to have uh, the listening audience know, you know, who you are, or as uh, one of my elders says, whose you are. Um, so could you just give the people out there just, uh, I guess, um, an overview of who you are as a person, who you are as an artist, um, you know, if you want to take it from childhood on to currently, you're more than welcome to do that. Um, so just let the people know who you are, describe who you are. Um, to put it in a nutshell, um, my name is DDM. I'm from West Baltimore City, Maryland. Um, I'm a rapper. Um, I've been rapping, it seems like, for forever. Um, I started, of course, in high school, Black Tops, Battles. I did battles in the area, Baltimore, D.C. area, for a few years. Um, then transitioned into a full artist. Um, I've been doing that ever since. Um, I am credited as the first out artist. Um, and out hip hop artists in Baltimore um, and in the DC region, um, which has its perks and cons. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much who I am, you know, um, political activist. I do a podcast, well, a web series, uh, Secretary of Shade, um, which I do probably about twice a week. Um, and that's going really well. We have what, 15,000 subs on YouTube, so that's going pretty good. So I'm a, I'm a little bit of everything. I'm a character. Yeah, thank you for letting the listening audience know who you are. Um, and, you know, you just letting people know you the more than just an artist, you know. Um, so, yeah, thank you for that. No problem. Yeah, yeah for sure. And we're going to get um, into a little bit more about you being the first um, out hip-hop artist in Baltimore. But um, before we go into that, I just, um, you know, want to get your insight or just uh, see if you can give us a little bit more about your background. Like, how was it like growing up in Baltimore? Um, you know, early life, things other than hip hop. Just give us like a little synopsis of, um, yeah, who DDM is. I mean, Baltimore is a, is a tough town. It's a blue collar town. Um, with Baltimore people, you know where you stand with us. If we love you, we love you. If we, if you don't, we don't, you don't. Um, it's not really hard to figure out. Um, <laughs> growing up here, <laughs> growing up here, um, it's very honest. It, Baltimore preps you for the realities of what it's like to be a human being and to face real life. Um, it's no sugarcoating. There is or was a, a better sense of community when I was a child. Um, so that's that's kind of different now, but it's a blue collar town. I know coming up, um, Baltimore is a small city masquerading as a big city. And I tell people that all the time because um, it's not as big as Philadelphia, nowhere near as big as, as Brooklyn, New York. But um, it feels big because our city 
we've always repped sections. So you got West Baltimore, East Baltimore, South Baltimore, and all of these little pocket neighborhoods that are popular um, or notorious for one reason or another um, there. Um, you learn things quickly. I always tell people I learned how to dress. I learned how to be savvy. You learn how to crack on people real easy. It's, it's very, very hard to, to trump a Baltimore person in the dozens, as they say. Um, we got something in the bag for you. Um, as far as the school system, it could use a lot of work. Um, when I was going to school, it was a little bit better because we had great teachers at that time who cared. Um, and I don't even want to fault teachers now, per se, but it's just a tough town. It's, it's, it's not as, if you've watched The Wire, it's not as dramatic as that, but it's damn near close. Damn near close. Yeah, um, we'll, yeah, I think we'll get into The Wire at some point, probably a little later. I guess, you know, you can't, you can't speak to a Baltimore artist without bringing up The Wire, right? <laughs> Um, so uh, my next question is, um, when did you fall in love with music first? Um, and what was that music? Um, when I think of Baltimore being from Philly, everything you said kind of sounded like Philly when it comes to, kind of came to the honesty of the people. Um, you'll know where you're standing with a Philadelphian and, and as well as someone from Baltimore. But what music did you fall in love with first? Was it Baltimore Club? Was it pop? Was it hip hop? Um, so just describe, you know, what that was. Believe it or not, um, I didn't get to listen to rap until I got to, like, middle school. So a lot of the records that um, I listened to, was exposed to, was old soul records. Um, my mom is a big musical theater head. Um, we were not of means growing up, so we were, we, we, was, we was definitely winging it a lot of those times. Um, but uh, my mother made sure that she kept us distracted from what was going on outside by exposing us to a lot of the arts, a lot of the theater. Um, we would watch old black and whites, um, listen to a lot of, of course, you know, the Marvin Gaye's, the Michael Jackson's. My mother's a huge Earth, Wind & Fire fan, like the biggest Earth, Wind & Fire fan. So uh, we listened to a lot of that. I listened to a lot of music that was not of my age group because I was the only child for like a decade. So I was exposed to a lot of old witchcraft and wizardry, so to speak, um, in those years. So a lot of my musical tastes were centered around that. So like I said, I didn't really get exposed to rap or hip hop until I got to middle school when I was, you know, surrounded by kids from different areas, different neighborhoods. And you get a little bit more access the older you get. What was that Earth, Wind & Fire song playing like when you cleaning the cleaning the crib on a Saturday morning and you could smell the pine saw and you know you, you know you, you know you cleaning the bathroom and your mama's like oh you missed that spot what's that Earth, Wind & Fire song? <laughs> it could be anywhere fantasy you can't hide love it could be gotta get you out of my life which is that's a Beatles remake but they did an excellent job with it, it could be a, a number of them would you mind I mean. Imagination, it's, it's a number of them. Like, it's just Earth with a Fire is just a soundtrack to the black experience of a certain time, you know. And a lot of a lot of those records, certain records surpass sonic 
recognition and they become a part of Americana and 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 life. And I think that's what with groups like that. Um, my, my my father, my stepfather loved the whispers, the stylistics, like all of that stuff. So it was it was it was interesting um, growing up to hear all of that, and then you get to middle school, and these kids are like, "What in the hell is that?" Like nobody, <laughs> no, everybody's listening to Bad Boy, Master P, you know, like they're like, "What is this?" <laughs> like like you know, and I'm listening to this oldie station here. 95.9 like my whole playlist my whole cassette tape my little my little tape that i don't take off the radio it may have some swv in it or something like that but it's mostly like old head um joints so yeah that's 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 what i was raised on you know yes those are the times just like recording your own mixtapes you know what i mean just off the radio um there's something about that time that just like I don't think anything will compare to it, <laughs> but it was just like phenomenal just putting together your own mixtapes like that. Um, and I also have to bring this up because it's very important. Um, you know, you said that you're from Baltimore, Didi, uh, Jamar's from Philly. I'm from Boston, so even though this podcast is based out of St. Louis, uh, we have this like East Coast connection that I very much appreciate. So. Um, this is this is uh, hitting home in the right way for me. So uh, that's what's yeah, up. Let's get, yeah, it's it's just uh, phenomenal. So really exciting. Um, so yeah, let's get into like the ballad of Omar. You don't have to work and slave. Main event of the evening. Wednesday and half past the hour. Are you a racist? Whether you're black or white, race relations expert Dr. Charles King says you probably are. I'm Al Sanders for all of us at Eyewitness News. Hey, yo, fuck that. We're this nigga Omar, son. Hey, yo, want everything I love, nigga. When I see him, I'ma lay his bitch ass out. I'm running his pockets and all that. Cause niggas need to know. Fuck that. I'm too old to change. Nigga, I'm gold star, super fly. Hold me, my wingspan is gold dog. Gold, yeah, Made out of crack and club beats. We was watching the main event from nosebleed seats. Over time, I learned poverty breeds beef if you can't eat. Serve sandwiches, panhandling, machine guns ring out, and everybody scrambling. Stray bullets turned all faces into mannequins. Charge, get you behind bars with no bail. You would think that fool pitching wholesale. Niggas selling weed and doing time for fish skin.
star, the trap star, her celebrity, my reputation go way far. Best not miss, so I'm coming back with AR. And no lights, hookers on the stroke, you would better than termites. Cataract forming from staring into police lights. I think this record is phenomenal. Um, I think front to back, um, there's just like uh, how visceral it gets, you know, ends with a beautiful love story. Um, tell us like, what was the thought process? What came up for you? What were your inspirations coming out with it? How was it different than anything that you kind of put together in the past? Um, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. So the Ballad of Omar, actually, we can't really, I can't really talk about it without mentioning the project that I put out last year, last July, in July 19, called Beautiful Girls, right? Mm. So I had been battling for years, rapping for years, or whatever. And I made this record, Beautiful Girls, which was going to be like probably my last record, because I'm like, oh, I don't know, right, right? This industry is just tough in general. And I've been trying for so long, I was like, this is going to be it. So I put out Beautiful Gowns and started getting some traction. People stopped paying attention to it. I even got, you know, some, some looks from majors. And unfortunately, when you are Black, not the most handsome guy, and you're doing, like, this, like, dance, pop, forward kind of sounding music, mm. There, there's an expectation that they, they're like, well, where's the soul? Okay? And they're like, I'm like, in my mind, like, nigga, I just made like 13 trades. I did all of this amazing shit that if I was somebody else or if I looked different, y'all would fucking love. Like, it would be no question. And they're like, well, you gotta rap, rap. And the, the thing that is so irritating is like being a gay person or being a gay black person I'm going to make that distinction because it's a difference. Being mm. a gay black person in hip-hop is like being the first black person in anything. Wow. Like, I feel like you, you kind of have to say that one more time. <laughs> <laughs> you got to run it. <laughs> Once again, being a gay black person in rap, in, in music, is like being the first black person in anything. So, like, now... I use the modeling industry, for example, because I think it's a perfect example. You can have uh, a Naomi Campbell, a Grace Jones, a Tyra Banks, um, uh, uh, Naomi Lenoir, all of these great girls, Jordan Dunn, Chanel Iman. But in order for all of these girls to exist, you have to have Beverly Johnson first, who's the first black woman on the cover 
of American Vogue. Danielle Luna was the first actual black woman on the cover of any Vogue that was British Vogue in the 60s. But we always look at Beverly Johnson as the first because American Vogue is the premier edition, quote unquote, right? So Beverly, here comes Beverly Johnson, all American looking, non-threatening. She's fitting in with all of the stereotypes and everything we love about America. We got to have her first before we can have a Grace Jones, right? So to say that in hip hop, when you're gay anything in rap, my first project, my first project of this time, incarnation of myself, right? Beautiful gowns, multi-layered, sonically fun, bright, positive, moving. They like it, but they like, we know it's more there. You're from Baltimore City. There has to be some traumatic story for you, right? Which, at first, I was annoyed by, because I'm like, you're saying that I can't be from this, this concrete jungle unless I am battered and, and weathered from the environment of it. I can't just be the that one rose that grew from concrete. Now, keep in mind, to be honest, they were actually right in this case. <laughs> but I didn't like it. I didn't like the fact that because a lot of our artists here run into this, we always, there's always strings attached to what we have to do. They want the struggle. So I'm like, all right. Okay. So my manager, he goes, you're going to have to rap on this next project. Now, mind you, I've been rapping for years. I ain't no spring chicken. I ain't just pop out doing this. I've been battled in every hood in this area. Like, get it all. But I had to remember, I had to do that nationally. So to the nation, it's like, who are you? Even though to this region, it's like, we know DDM. So I went in my room. Um, Dwayne Lawson, who that story is, is trippy. Headphone music. He sent me a beat pack. I had known them for a decade plus, like 13, 14 years. And I was like, Dwayne, they want me to rap. I need like rap records. But I don't want to be trendy. I ain't want to do a trap record. I ain't want to be chasing this trend and sounding like this and, you know, auto-tune on this. And I ain't want to do all that. So I'm like, we're going to tell my story. The Omar character from The Wire, respected by both sides, feared by both sides. It's a certain certain, certain aura that that character has. So I said, I'm going to tell my story using my city, using the stereotypes of my city, but I'm going to flip it on you, and I'm going to do it in a way that you're not expecting. So fast forward, I'm recording. First song I recorded for Ballad of Omar was Boys Don't Cry. That set the bar for me, Okay. I, I recorded like maybe 25 records, 20, 25 records, and drilled it down to the eight. Rule of thumb for me, I know a lot of artists do this, but for me, always record more than what I need because you want to be able to have the best of the best. And I record the project. I send it to my manager. He played it for some of these people, and they like, is that the same person from Beautiful Gowns? They couldn't believe it. And they're like, yeah, that's him. He wrote it all. He said, like, that's him. So they couldn't believe it. So with, with, with Beautiful, with, with the Ballad of Omar, it was really like, okay, you want to hear my story? You're going to hear the whole story. It's not going to be filtered out. It's not going to be dumbed down. You, you want to hear pain? 
I'm gonna give you the pain. And that's how we, we came to this. Thank you for that. Those answered all the questions I had about like the process. Um, and I did have a lot of questions about the process, but you just eloquently stated all of those perfectly. Um, I guess my next question is how did that feel um, with the two processes of recording Beautiful Gowns versus The Ballad of Omar? To me, you know how you know art is like subjective. You might paint something and have a totally different um, opinion of what you're painting as opposed to the viewer. Me as the listener in this instance, it felt like after listening to both projects, it felt it reminded me of a Tupac, uh, the Tupac quote, where we'll, we'll throw it in the podcast once we find it. But he said something along the lines of, it's only so long that black folks are gonna sing Kumbaya to that Kumbaya and those we shall overcomes turn to, nah, fuck this, we turn it up. Again, we you got to be logical. You know, if, if I know that in this hotel room, they have food every day and I'm knocking on the door every day, to eat and they tell and they open the door let me see the, the party let me see like them throwing salami all over the i mean just like throwing food around where they're telling me there's no food in here you know what i'm saying every day i'm standing outside trying to sing my way in you know what i'm saying we are hungry please let us in we are hungry please let us in after about a week that song is going to change the we hungry we need some food after two three weeks it's like you know give me all the food we're breaking out the door and after a year and you just like you know what i'm saying i'm picking the lock coming through the door blasting you know what i'm saying it's like you hungry you reached your level you don't want anymore we asked 10 years ago we was asking with the panthers we was asking with them you know with civil rights movement we was asking you know now that those people that were asking and they're all dead and in jail. So now what do you think we're going to do? And we shouldn't be angry. And my raps that I'm rapping to my community shouldn't be filled with rage. You know what I'm saying? They shouldn't be filled with the same atrocities that they gave to me. In the media, they don't talk about it. So in my raps, I have to talk about it. And it just seems foreign because there's no one else talking about it. Right. Well, at playing devil's advocate, somebody might say, well, what does Tupac have? He, he's a movie star. He's got, you know, hit records. What does he have to complain about? And I'm going to tell you. Um, it's like being the last person alive, you know what I'm saying? After three days, you can't do anything. What can I do? Where can I go? There's no, there's no black neighborhood, you know what I'm saying, with black people who have the same amount of money as me. You know what I'm saying? There's richer and there's poorer. There's no just, you know, did a movie, got a little bit of money, living okay, black neighborhood. I have to be in a white neighborhood, so I don't fit in. That's hell. It's hell when you can't be around your peers. All my life grew up around black people, poor people, but I can't live around poor people now because they'll rob me. And why would they rob me? Because they're starving, because there's no money here. But they're telling me, now that I made a little money, I have to move here. So it's not like no one's ever trying to deal with this section. They're just moving away from it. And we're gonna have more stars coming from together, but they're gonna, they're gonna all move this way. You know what I'm saying? So it's like all, all the society is doing is leeching off the ghetto. They use the ghetto for their pain, for their sorrow, for their culture, for their music, for their happiness, for their movies, to talk about boys in the hood. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to be another young, I don't want to be 50 years old at a BET We Shall Overcome um, Achievement Awards. You know what I'm saying? Uh-uh. Not me. You know, I want, when they see me, they know that every day when I'm breathing, it's, it's, it's for us to go farther. You know, every time I speak, I want the truth to come out. You know what I'm saying? Every time I speak, I want to shiver. You know, I don't want them to be like, they know what I'm going to say because it's polite. They know what I'm going to say. 
And even if I get in trouble, you know what I'm saying? That ain't that what we're supposed to do. It's, I'm not saying I'm going to rule the world or I'm going to change the world, but I guarantee that I will spark the, the, the brain that will change the world. And that's our job, is to spark somebody else watching us. We, we might not be the ones, but let's not be selfish, and because we're not going to change the world, let's not talk about how we should change it. I don't know how to change it, but I know if I keep talking about how dirty it is out here, somebody's going to clean it up. So to me, it felt like, it felt like beautiful, in a sense, it felt like Beautiful Gowns is like this beautiful pop record that could be played on the radio or any party, and people would turn up. And then it felt like the, the, the Ballad of Omar is like that aggression, and like you stated, like, you know, like you just hit on the subject, like, it was like, you're getting all my pain. Um, so what was like the feelings that you felt with both recording processes? And was there a difference? It was definitely a difference. Um, with Beautiful Gowns, um, I wrote that record with high intention. I wanted that record to sound sophisticated and I wanted that record to sound like a personal and artistic achievement for where what I could do. You know, because there's a lot of people that can rap. You being able to rap is not special. That's not, yes, it is a talent, but words and punchlines does not a classic make, okay? Um, with Beautiful Gowns, I wanted to show he can, my songwriting ability, my hook writing ability, my cadences, my ability to weave into different genres of music seamlessly without losing myself. That's what I wanted to show with Beautiful Gowns. So Beautiful Gowns was made with more intent, more sophistication, and more strategy. The Ballad of Omar was made off of pure visceral emotion. With the Ballad of Omar, there was not an intent. I didn't even have a single, and I didn't even care if I had a single for this project. Usually with a project, you got that record. This is the record we're going to roll out first. It, with, with, with Ballad of Omar, I was like, there is no single. Even though people are saying there's singles on it or there's a single on it. I was like, there is no single. Just put all the shit out at one time and call it a day. It's supposed to be heard as a body of work. Treat it like a mixtape. Put the shit out. And like, when I was recording Beautiful Gowns, um, once I started to tap into the pain and tap into the history and, and get back into my bars, like at the time, I was... Um, I was making Beautiful Gowns, and I'm even working on a follow-up to Beautiful Gowns. I already wrote three songs for the follow-up in October, but as I was writing Beautiful, as I was writing The Ballad of Omar, rather, um, I just started tapping in. I was listening to a lot of Nas, a lot of MFD. I get no kick from champagne. Mere alcohol doesn't thrill me at all. Tell me why shouldn't it be true? I get a kick out of brew. There's only one beer left. Rappers screaming all in our ears like we're deaf. Tempt me, do a number on the label. Beat up all the MCs and drink them under the table like it's on me. Put it on my tab, kid. However you get there, foot it, cab it, iron horse it. You leave it on your face, forfeit. Across the mic, hold it like the heat. He might toss it. Told her, tell him they stole it. He told her he lost it. She told him get off it and a bunch of other more shit. Getting money, DTs be getting no new leads. It's like he eating watermelon. Stay spitting new seeds. This the weed, give me some of what he drooping off. As soon as he wake up, choking like it was hooping cough. 
they grouping soft First hour at the open bar and they trooping off He went to go laugh, he gets some head by the side road She asked him autograph her derriere red to wide load This yard bird tastes like fried toad turn love villain Take pride in cold words, crooked eye mold, nerd geek with a cold heart Probably still be speaking in rhymes as an old fart Study how to eat to die by the pizza guy Know he's not too fly to ski in a squeeze eye A squeeze a thigh, maybe give her curves a feel The same way she feel it when he flow with nerves are still They call a super when they need their back on plumbing fix How is only one left, the pack coming six Whatever happened to two and three A herb tried to slide with four and five and got caught Like what you doing chief? Don't make them have to get cutting like truancy Matter of fact, not for nothing right now You and me, looser than a pair of Adidas I hope you brought your spare tweeters MCs sound like cheerleaders Rapping and dancing like redhead kingpin Doom came to do the thing again No matter who be blinging He do it for the smelly hubbies Seeds know what time it is like it's time for Teletubbies Few can do it, even fewer can sell it Take it from the dude who wear a mask like a tarted helmet He plots shows like robberies In and out, one, two, three, nobody's please Run the cash and you won't get a wet sweatshirt The mic is the shoddy, nobody moves, nobody get hurt Bring the heat like the boy done go on the wall He came in the door, and everybody on the floor A whole string of jobs like we on tour Every night, on the score, coming to your corner store which is an extension of MF Doom, a lot of um, Bishop Mayru, shit like that. You know what I'm saying? And like that gagged a lot of people. Like my engineer who I worked with like a decade, he was like, like my old, even my old bandmate, because I played in a band before, he was like, all these years I've been trying to get you to listen to this shit and you listen to it now. And I'm like, homie, I've been new about this stuff, but I'm trying to get you the bag, okay? Um, I, I love all of these guys, but they don't, they, I had brand dreams, but I had to realize that I had to address 
what was really going on in my life because my life is not nice all the time. It, it should be hard. And um, when I came to the studio, I was coming to the studio playing all this stuff, um, playing Black on both sides, playing Things Fall Apart, and all of these different projects. And it kind of helped those records through osmosis helped me figure out how I was going to fuse this record together. Right. No, I think, I think, um, you know, you can hear it and feel it in the, in the record, like even going from the track, the Ballad of Omar um, into Swivel, you can kind of like, like you can feel just the energy level was like on something different. Um, and the bar, the bars are there. You talked about the bars, like you had to kind of get back to the bar. Like the bars were just off the chain. I almost had to listen to it, like, like again, just to catch everything that you were saying. Um, uh, it was, it's just incredible, incredible. Um, do you ever think that, you know, after people listen to this for a while, and really like appreciate it for what it is? Do you feel like? Um, beautiful gowns will ever like come back like what will make a 360 comeback or people will start looking at it a little a little bit differently what what are your thoughts on that that's a good question that's a very good question um i think people i think we underestimate listeners and i think that's something that the record business did for many years um i think listeners are smart enough now to distinguish the two I think listeners now, through the advent of the internet, Spotify, and all these places and the way that they receive music, listeners have been able to wrap their head around artists being three-dimensional human beings who have multiple sides. And one thing that I'm I'm very that very that caught me off guard was the fact that I had made a statement because there are some people who found me with beautiful gowns, that's how they know me, that's their introduction, who are like, wait a minute, who is this angry, fat, black man? On Who is this? The cover is black and white. What happened to the platinum black? What is this? You know, like, they're like, they're like, what is this? And I had made a statement, and I said, you know, I'm sorry if you found me through beautiful gowns. I know that this is a lot for you, Okay to have such a 360 kind of a change in not only the content, but the sonics of it, the music itself. I said, but with Beautiful Gowns, Beautiful Gowns was designed with intent. And it was designed to get me more bookings. And as I said in that post, I said, you know, for many years I have tried to please many demographics and it's always almost got me there. I'm always almost there. and I said, if I'm going to continue to do this, like, really, I have to be honest with myself. I have to be able to look at the project, perform it for years to come. Now, there's some records on Beautiful Girls that I can perform for years to come. Don't get it twisted. That is very much a part of who I am. But I'm tired of tiptoeing around folks to get a gig. You know, I, I can't, I, I'm not, I'm never going to be Tyson Beckford. So why am I sitting here tiptoeing trying to get bookings at these pride events and 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 and, and, and I shouldn't say pride events, but these like corporate 
mostly white pride events where the go-go dancers get top billing and here you come with DJ band full experience and they want to give you this little ass bit of money or treat you like you're nothing. That's a disrespect to me as a musician. Okay. Because the band got to get paid. I pay everybody. Nobody does anything for free for me. Everybody gets paid. The band, the DJ, the dancer, everybody. They leave it with something. And I like it that way. Because that way I don't want nobody coming back to me saying what I own. Wow. And with beautiful gowns, um, we got a lot of traction. A lot. I, I made a lot of fans off of beautiful gowns. I got a lot of work. That, that album still does a return for me in certain arenas. But I can't live in just one thing. And I'm not going to put myself in a prison trying to appease a demographic that really has no tie to my experience as first a Black man. As a Black man in America with nuance. We are not allowed the grace of nuance and to showcase our humanity. That's why I made records like Boys Don't Cry. Yes, it is steeped in what it's like to be Black and queer growing up in the inner city, but Boys Don't Cry is a metaphor for every Black man. That opening statement where he was like, you gonna go out there and beat them niggas the fuck up, because if you don't beat them the fuck up, I'm gonna beat your ass. Every Black boy in America heard that statement. Either from their father or from their mom. That's you know, uncle, uncle, grandfather, facts, <laughs> everyone. You know, I mean, a ramble, get on my soapbox. Um, you know, no, but since yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Can, yeah, can we just jump into "Boys Don't Cry" right now? Because actually, I was introduced to the record um, on actually Friday, late, late Friday night, and I think it had just came out Friday, right? If I'm not mistaken, right. Okay, so yeah, I was introduced on Friday by uh, John Morrison, who's um, we're Facebook friends back in Philly. Shout out to him, and um, yeah, all the work that he does back home uh, seems like a good dude. I never met him in person, but we have a lot of mutual friends. But anyway, I I listened to um, he posted the ballad of Omar on his Facebook page, and I listened. I was like, oh, this is dope. And somebody was like, this is like some future gangster gangster type shit right here. So I was like, oh, dope. I listened to it, then I went down the track list on Spotify and Boys Don't Cry was there. And I was like, oh damn, let me hear what this is about. And I listened and I was like, yo, this shit is hard. <laughs> I was like, it was like be like the hard, and I was to a lot of, I was to a lot of like, Benny the Butcher, West Side, like, I got like, the whole, like that whole camp. And that's pretty much all I'm listening to. Cause I like the old throwback hip hop stuff or whatever. And I was like, this might be the hardest record I heard this year, not just because of the beat, not because of the, but just because of the whole package. And then, like you saying, like some real stuff, like you said, like any black man can identify with that. Even like I remember, and not not to not to you know go on a whole diatribe, but I remember being young and like you doing certain things to your mom or somebody being like, "Oh, don't do that because you're gonna be perceived as gay." And right. like you know, and it's like even now that I'm 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 a straight you know cisgendered male, but even back then it's like. You know, what if I did grow to be a gay man or whatever, you know? So I guess my question is delving into that record. Um, just take us through that writing process. Um, we I just want to really delve deep into that record because that record is impactful and powerful. It's how we started off the podcast today. 
And um, just give the listening audience just the whole process of that record and where you had to go to create that art. So Voice on Cry, like I said, that was the first record that I recorded for this project. Um, one of the first records that I wrote for this project. And so Headphones sent me the beat. He sent me two beats. He always sends them to me in packs because uh, he writes like a fashion designer. So the beat types he sends is like a collection. So they belong to the same family. And so he sends me the beat like this hard, this real hard. Like it just sounded real, like real visceral, right? Um, and I said, this, this makes me feel like Big. Big is my favorite rapper ever in life. Somebody could come out and be 10 times harder than him and Big could be my favorite rapper forever. I don't care. I don't <laughs> care how old it is. And so I was, I had invoked the spirit of Big on Ready to Die. And mm. you notice, I, I reference all classics for this project. Mm. I reference no trash. We're going to play them throughout the podcast too to make it even. <laughs> yeah, um, and like, I was like, or ready to die, and, and I, I, I'm, I'm going down this rabbit hole because it'll make sense to you. So just follow me. Mm. On ready to die, Big captured nuance of Black men. The emo- Nobody had ever captured the emotional side effects of being Black in urban America in the 90s like that. Mm, say that. <laughs> um, the, the nuance, the, the 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 lines that you teeter, the emotional decisions that you have to make, the balancing act and the juggling between your family members, your mom who you love dearly, but she really cannot raise you anymore. She's reached her end point because she just can't help you. You now have to help yourself. And with boys don't cry. I said, I need to tap into that rage and express what I feel, what I haven't heard yet in that arena. And so I took all of those feelings that every Black man experiences, but I put the queer perspective to it. And not just, like, there's a difference. There's a white queer perspective and there's a Black queer perspective, which is why when I got this, the, the interludes with the, the father talking and the mother talking, shout out to Ashley Alexander, Alexander Blue, who did those two parts. I said, we have to, sh- I have to show people what it feels like, friends I have, where their mother talking to you like you ain't shit. Okay? No, it's not. <laughs> You're going to go to a, a correction camp or they kick you out and it's like, no, this is hood shit, okay? Preach, and we preach. need to give you the hood, the hood perspective, like what it's really like. When you got to go out on the block and you just got to sell either work ass or something because you can't go back home. Mm. And when I, when I made this record, I needed to put the psychology of the mindset of some of these kids you see that may be boosted in Target. Or some of these kids that you see may be out on the block 
and they fight angry. And when they rob you, they might smack the shit out of you with the pistol. Not because you did anything, but they so goddamn mad that they got to do this shit. They discussed it not only with their circumstance, but with themselves. But we don't take time to talk to those kids. We don't take time to talk to those boys and, and the emotional trauma that comes with having to come to grips with the fact that you are saying gender loving. Black people not going to feel sorry for your ass because you are mark against black people because black people uh, are, are, is the group of people. I think black people are always playing with optics. We are a group of people, a race of people who are constantly haunted by how we look to other people. And when you compound all of that with trying to figure out the sexual piece of who you are, the survival piece of who you are, and how this fits into your life, that's a coming to God, coming to Jesus, chickens coming home to roost moment. That's a lot to process. And I wanted to put it in that bucket. Yeah, uh, thank uh, you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, that that was a f fantastic just summary of what you went through through that um, the writing process. I feel like this segue is really dopely into kind of what we do, you know, on a regular basis. Um, we work with black men and like healing through writing and being in a safe uh, space to talk about their experiences. Um, so yeah, talk talk a little bit more about like where you were mentally um, and, and how you're able to carry the weight of all of that. You know, I think previously on our podcast, we talked about double consciousness, but what you describe is like so much more than that. It almost sounds like just like compounded, you know, multiple, multiple things, um, you know, optics in terms of um, trying to survive, you know, not only within our own community, but, um, just in America as Black people. Um, to, to, to talk to me about how you carry that weight. I carry that weight by going through healing. Um, I am fortunate to be in a space where I am working on myself. Mm. Um, I am a constant work in progress. Being a constant work in progress, I'm able to now see flaws, see places for me to improve. It's like when you're, it's like being a computer and the new software update comes and you're working out all of the kinks. You from, you don't went from iOS 12 to iOS 13.1. And this is fixing all of the kinks. It's going to create new kinks. But all of that backlog and, and, and things that you've been holding on to, you're able to now address it. Um, I think that I'm able to work through this because I'm surviving. There are so many people that I started um, with in rap and just in life who are just not here anymore. They're all gone. And by being able to outwit, outplay, and outlast the streets, America, society in general, 
I'm now able to reach back and 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 use my music as a sort of therapy or hopefully a, a roadmap to how to on how to discover yourself and heal yourself. Um, and that that's really what it is. Like I think as you get older, as you survive, as you go through things, it makes you stronger and you're able to fix fix certain stuff and kind of heal from it. But you have to be receptive to that. You have to be receptive to the help. You have to be receptive to your flaws and where you fucked up. Sorry if y'all, y'all I don't know if y'all curse on me though, but sorry. But you gotta be receptive oh, to all of that. When you are receptive to that, then you're able to start figuring things out and, and lend a helping hand to other people. And I think that's that's how I've been able to get ahead and champion all of these things and and, and really speak to people and connect, you know, in that way. Yeah, thank you for that. And Brian had, uh, his last question was about safe spaces. And I want to just go over one of the bars from uh, Boys Don't Cry, uh, where you talk about not being able to relate to having a safe space. I, I'll, I'll, I'll let you break down the bar. Oh, uh, uh, so yeah, when you talk about safe space, I can't relate. That shit go out the window when them tempers escalate. That's the realest shit ever. Um, you know, the, the 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 clubs that I've been to, that I go to, the areas that I'm from, all of that Lady Gaga going to save me, safe space, we are one shit is cute. Okay? That shit is cute for you. The reality for black gay youth is not that. Because guess what? They still killing transgender women. They, it ain't no safe space for them. They trying to create them. But they kill them. And guess what? These white queens and shit, they don't be out protesting for them. No. Why? Because they got their rights. Let me tell you something. Like, people like, oh, black people, y'all didn't get behind gay marriage and all this stuff. That wasn't for us. Yes, uh, as a a same gender loving person, I can go and get married in, in most places. Yeah. But I'm gonna tell you something, and and it'll tie it in with that 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 bar. All of that is bullshit to me. And here's why: because when gay marriage, for case in point, passed here in Maryland, right, there was a shift in how you were treated. When you would go to a gay bar pre-gay marriage, oh, we're all in this together. We're out. Uh, my sister, my brother, we're all together. Once you gave white men the right to pass over their money to each other, get married, have all the benefits, that whole common underdog thread of being queer, that shit went out the window for a lot of them older queens. Because now, yeah, they gay, but they're still white men and they got all of the rights of every other white man. So why do we need you? So now you're getting side eyes when you go into certain places. Or they're too rowdy. They're too loud. Let's close this down because I have my rights now. So that safe space shit, there will never be a safe space 
for black people in America, let alone black queer people in America. You can't sell cigarettes. You can't go cash a check. You can't even ride in your car, mind your business with a legally license to carry firearm. You can't sit in your house and play video games. So there is no safe. So all of that, you know, my safe space and we're here. This is what we're going to do. That shit ain't real for us. And, 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 and that's, that's another reason why I made Boys Don't Cry. Because I need for Black people to understand. You may not like who I lay with. And that's your business, Tabitha Brown. Okay? That's your business. But at the end of the day, we still Black people. We still got to protect each other. Don't nobody say nothing about you dating your sister's ex-husband and bringing them to the cookout and everybody acting like they don't know what's going on. Jeez. Don't nobody say nothing about Uncle John who was touching Cousin Sally when she was 13. Everybody act like they don't know what's going on. They call her Cousin Sally crazy. She the black sheep of the family. She just don't come around. We yeah. not going to talk about it, though. The time of black people, the time you can't pick and choose with your own people. Because everybody's in pain. So why should we, I know you want to feel important or feel better or use that Bible and no shade to people who I'm a religious person as well, but you use the same Bible that they use to keep you in chains to oppress your own your own family. Mm. That's all I'm gonna say about that. <laughs> Man, I feel like all of that like nailed it right on the head. Um, Cause you know, it's true, it's true. I mean, we have to carve out our own safe space. Um, I mean, I feel like we can't do a- anything without being uh, seen as a threat or a target. Um, I feel like um, just with like all this police brutality that just never ends, um, you know, it's important that we recognize, you know, Ahmaud Arbery, you know, and our brother George, but also acknowledge that, you know, we lost, you know, Pop as well. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's very important that, um, you know, we we protect all, everybody, you know, everybody's feel safe. Um, so I appreciate your views on that. Um, so, what are some other projects or things that you have on the horizon? I know you've talked about Beautiful Gowns, maybe volume two. Um, are there anything that you might have like in the works or any ways that, any other things that you've been working on, maybe outside of hip hop rap um, that you want to kind of shed light to? Well, Secretary of Shade, which is youtube.com slash Secretary of Shade, I'm always going to do that for the most part, as long as I can. Um, that's going pretty well. That's my YouTube channel. I basically go on Facebook Live once or twice a week, um, schedule permitting. And um, I basically break down um, different things that are going on in the country from a legal perspective and a political perspective in ways that the average person can understand and keep abreast. Um, from a music perspective, we'll see that that 
that side of BDM, that beautiful gown side, but I'm in such a space right now. I'm really in my rat bag. Um, right now, I'm really in love with the process of making this, this dookie project, which will be out in October, late October, early November, which is basically, um, it's kind of like, you know, how Wayne got his dedications. I want to take these wire characters and twist them again. Like, Battle of Omar, mm-hmm. people are so surprised by that. So, Dookie, um, that character, I can relate to that character as well, because I have to relate to him. You know, not the first choice. You know, like, not the best of clothes. You know, picked on. No real friends, except for maybe one. I want to go into the psyche of that child. I want to go into the psyche. I've already written, like, what, two, two and a half songs for this project already. That's just how I work. When I'm inspired, I'm inspired. And I write as long as I'm inspired because sometimes you will go through a dry spell where you get absolutely nothing. So while I'm inspired, I'm taking that, that, that taking advantage of it. And like with this project, I done wrote what, two songs, one of them called Yearbook that I think people are gonna love. Um, and uh, I'm working on that while still, of course, um, promoting Omar. We did the Lulu Vision digital um, virtual concert, which went over really, really well. Um, that's also available on Secretary of Shade YouTube. Um, and um, working on that. This time, I want to, I don't want to give too much away about Dookie, but this time I want to, like, the bars is even better because I'm, I'm tuned up. I'm well-oiled now. I'm really in the zone. So mm. the bars is even better. Um, sonically, um, I want to, I'm not going to give that away. Sonically, it's not going to be much of a departure from Omar and the grittiness of it, but it will be different sonically. Um, because I feel like I also create like a fashion designer. So how Dookie's life is wouldn't sound like how Omar's life is. Right. Or what that, what that vibe is. Because in a child or a teenager, in some ways, there's still a certain level of optimism. And there's also a certain level of having to face the reality of the world and what it feels like being a child who is now thrust into an adulthood that they really aren't prepared for. Um, yeah, I feel like so I'm excited about that. Yeah, I feel like with Dookie, like I'm I'm really amped to hear about that because I feel like with Dookie's story arc, like you have all the optimism in the world for that boy. Like in the world. Like you're rooting for him from start the start of that season to the end. And just like I will never forget that final scene. Like Dookie's yeah. final scenes, like ever, like that is always ingrained in my brain. So, I'm I'm amped to hear that for sure. I feel yeah. like, uh. yeah, it's, it's important. I think that um, it, because the thing is, every every child doesn't get saved, mm-hmm. and I know a lot of them children. I went to school with them, mm-hmm. and. And yeah, that's that's the reality. Like you said, every child doesn't get saved. And there's some real, there's also great stories that come from the hood, but there's also very tragic stories, of course, that come from the hood. Um, and I want to get into the wires a little bit before we get out of here and, and that's out of Baltimore. But um, you mentioned fashion design um, a few times. 
could you just speak to Dapper Dan, since that is your name, um, and how you got that name? Uh, Brian and I actually actually got to meet Dapper Dan and got the book signed from him that he came out with. Um, and could you speak to how you got the name Dapper Dan Minus, how you gave yourself that name and where it came from, and you know how Dapper Dan has effect, uh, affected you? Well, it's interesting. My original rap name many moons ago was just Midas, but it was like so hard to trademark that. Um, and at the time, like Dapper Dan has seen a resurgence now. So now everybody's like, ah, so you got your name for Dapper Dan? No, this is when nobody was talking about Dapper Dan. And I got the Dapper Dan piece um, at a time when I was thinner and, you know, really vain and into myself. I used to go to balls. I always like to wear labels, the Louis Vuittons, the Gucci, all of that stuff. So that's how I got um, got that name. And um, Dwayne Headphones basically was like, just put them together. Dapper Dan Myers, just put them together and we'll just use that. Just go with that, right? Um, and that's pretty much how the name goes. You know, anybody who knows it even now as a plus-size man, um, I still, you know, love a label. It's the it's the Negro in me. You know, I love a Gucci moment. I love a Louis moment. As enlightened as I am, is I'm flawed. I mean, I, I need a nice bag. You know, I want the Gucci. <laughs> you know, I, I I I I I need my moments. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Um, so that's how that that name um, came together. Um, Really, that's how it came together, honestly. Okay. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, I I just have to ask straight up: Would you ever be willing to come back? Because I feel like um, we definitely kind of have to hear back from you about kind of the latest stuff. Um, I'll just ask you over the you know the airwaves. Um, cause I feel like there's so much stuff over the horizon and it'd definitely be good to check in. Absolutely. I love you guys. Um, and I want to <laughs> say, uh, thank you for, for even reaching out. Like, I, I think that, um, shows like these are important, um, because they build bridges, you know, um, to be able to have a discussion, like we talked about before this interview about the whole Little Nas X and the HBO Barbershop discussion, right? Mm-hmm. How this conversation is going is how that conversation should have went. Mm-hmm. You guys came to the table wanting to have an honest dialogue with no intention and just to figure out who's this guy, right? Yeah. And I feel like the more we have these conversations, especially as Black men, um, as these conversations become more normal, we will see more progress. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I would I would love to, to come back on. Yeah, you're going to be a cousin of the show. Um, if you ever got anything you want to share, <laughs> you're always more than welcome to, to come on. And uh, Absolutely. You know, cousin Dapper Dan Midas. Um, <laughs> so... The one, the one thing I also appreciate, and you kind of just hinted to this too, is like, don't get it fucked up. I'm, I'm a gay man, but I will fuck you up if like a navy, right? Like, like you can get these hands, like, right? This is a day, right? Well, so you like, know, I didn't, right. <laughs> I, done, I done got into a few squabbles. I done got some razor blades thrown my way. I done, right. I done seen my, my fair share action. Um... And, and that's that's the thing. I, I never try to be overly compensating. But people know what it is. They know only to try me, but so much. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, so I, I, I've never had that problem. Um, I think a lot of times once people talk to me, like everybody, and I appreciate you guys' questions as well, because you didn't ask me typical questions. Like they always ask you the question of, what's it like to be gay and black? And I think that's just such a taboo question um, because it's like, you know, I don't know what it's like. They won't let us in. Like, <laughs> we're like, right. like, mm-hmm. like, I can't tell you, honestly. I just know that from standing outside, you know, like, I'm going to be real with you. I had my first ever label meeting after pursuing this career for 10 years. My first label meeting last year. First one ever. Wow. They and, just started giving us meetings. And could you speak to, because I actually got somebody... I'm not perfect when it comes to anything. So I had a question on Twitter a few weeks ago. Um, I forgot what the question even was, but somebody was talking about um, gay men not being allowed in the music industry, especially rap. Um, And I I was thinking of gay women, like, you know, throughout the years, rap has had a long history of um, lesbian women. Now we have our first out lesbian woman and young Ma, young M.A., young young, young M.A. but that's not, if somebody, somebody had to school me, that's the thing about, about things like you have to shut the fuck up and listen sometime to people. I don't have all the answers, you know what I mean? So somebody was like, no, but that's different than a gay man still. They still not gonna let a gay man into the rap industry. But, you know, we've got a history, a long history of, of I guess, you know, great gay women, even though all of them are in all the class what we know, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> But um, could you just, could you speak to the difference in hip hop between, I guess, gay women being allowed in hip hop, but you know, gay men still still working to sort of crack that barrier and to get in. And even I think you've seen it in R and B where Frank Ocean is in, you know, and some other people are in. Maybe you got Tyler the Creator. I'm not sure. What's going on there? Tyler plays with y'all. Right, exactly, exactly, exactly. That's why I'm not really, you know, we're not going to say that's why I really want to say that, but yeah, exactly. (laughs) We know that, but, you know. (laughs) But it's funny, right? (laughs) Yeah, here's the thing. I'm the hugest Tyler the Creator fan. Anybody who knows, I got all his vitals. I love the way he plays with y'all. Tyler may be gay, he may not be, I don't know. I really don't care. I, I just chuckle and I relish in his ability to make, like, when he did that Fuckmaster Flex freestyle <laughs> and Flex, I love that moment. Yo, we, 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 we got to throw, throw that on here for the culture. Definitely. He's going to possibly rhyme if he feels like rhyme. Is that a good way to put it? Yeah? Well, what are you listening to? It is right, it and I fell fucking memo. fell for I it. Even... I fucking fell for it. Okay. Oh, so now you, oh, you don't even want, don't even. Now you ready? Yeah, I'll look. I'm giving y'all nine bars. <laughs> y'all just got a three-hour interview. I'm cute as shit. We just let the world know you are a geek, goop, nerd, fuck. Goop. He said goop. <laughs> goop. Oh my god, he said goop. All right, ready? Okay, okay, okay. DJ Juanito's on the set. We're gonna throw this on and get a feel. Let's do it. Ooh. Acting like I didn't hear this beat before. Hey yo, 
Hey, it's Tyler, uh, Wolf Haley, Gap Tooth T, Bucket Hat T, Lemon Head Enzo, Lil Bunny Hop, Ace the Creator, Thurnus Haley, Cybex, <laughs> Beef Loaf, Free Rocky, Free Rock Kim, that's my guy. Um, <clears throat> Ayo, um, Ayo. Free rock him, free rock him. I might fly to Sweden to free him. Hmm. Okay, I'm freestyle. I said, free rock him, free rock him. I might fly to Sweden to free him. Braid my wig ASAP, tap on my ribs, switch with him. Then I can fuck all the sweetened men that I wanna. Actually, I'm gonna heat it up real quick, motherfucker. I'm LeBron. Listen, Flex, we just met, but I know it don't seem like all Kelly wet dreams. I always keep 16s, nigga. I love that moment because Funkmaster Flex, he just he just did not know what to do. Nope. And I love that moment. Um, some will say little Nas X, but I'm gonna tell you from experience, you know, they kind of treat him as an anomaly. They don't treat little Nas X as sea change. And with all that, that early sense. success, you felt it was important to make a, an announcement recently. He's gay, so what? Yeah, what's the point? So why, the, why did he feel that was necessary? about who cares? That's actually my question. Why do you feel it was necessary to come out and say that? It's not that like it's like being forced. It's just like knowing like growing up, like I'm grown, I'm growing up to hate this shit. I'm not supposed to Grown up to hate like what? Hate, hate, what? hate what? Homosexuality, gay Why? people. Come on now. Why are you gonna get If you're really it? from the hood, you know. You like, you know, like it's it's, it's not some so it's like if for me, the the cool dude with the song on top of everything to say this any other time. Like, I'm doing this for attention in my eyes. But if you're doing this, like, while you're at the top, you know it's, like, for real. And it's, like, showing, like, it doesn't really, like, matter, I guess. Exactly. There it is. This kid who got flirted. They don't treat him as somebody who, they don't say, oh, Lil Nas X has the biggest selling number one ever, the longest running number one ever. Let's go get more gay black people. Mm-mm. Mm -mm. Now, if Lil Nas X was a white girl from Iowa and she had red hair with green eyes, you would see mad white girls with red hair and green eyes getting signed left and right. But we still got work for hours. And as far as women, see, the thing is, a lot of the lesbian women or women who we think are lesbians or identify as lesbians in hip-hop, they fit into the construct of hypermasculinity, right? So, you know, when you see young young Ma, and shout out to her, I had the beef with her. I actually am a big fan of hers, but her aesthetic is not threatening to the hip hop populace as it stands. She's, you know, that woman who is hard, aggressive. You know, we've seen that same character with uh, Snoop on a wire. Those mm. type, those type of Archetypes, those types of um, types of women are acceptable by hip hop. It's cute. It's great. You know what I'm saying? Like, she go hard. We love it. Um, with men, 
there seems to be this, it's like King Arthur or the sword in the stone, right? We still are trying to figure out who's going to get that sword out of that stone. And it's a puzzle. A lot of guys have tried. Um, a lot of guys have gotten some good exposure. Um, but the business at whole, they're going to give you every excuse. They're going to give you the numbers excuse. Then if you have the numbers, they're going to say, well, you can't rap. Not, and that shouldn't even matter nowadays because there's a lot of people that they push that can't rap. So the whole talent thing, I, whatever. You, you can know. poo-poo that, yeah. Right, you know what I'm saying? But for some reason, that's why I say being black and queer and, and, and a man in this business is like being the first black anything. Because you can't be okay. You have to be stellar in every sense of the word. You have to have a stellar project. Now, Ballad of Omar, people are loving the project. They're comparing it to great projects in hip-hop. We'll see how the business responds to this. Yeah, you I, know. Actually saw, I actually saw the review where uh, somebody gave it the classic today, which is dope. Go check out that review. Yeah, like in, in this, you know, I got a couple more comments. I'm doing a lot of interviews and stuff. But, you know, I, I feel like executives, like, <laughs> sometimes they're like, well, if we give them a shot, what if it actually happens? You know, and it's like, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it's like they almost scared. And I don't understand it because the music industry is not like, <sighs> there are a lot of gay folks that work in the music business. Um, or, or I will say this, they don't know how to, they always act like they don't know how to market gay people. Well, we don't know where we were singing. Just send me to the same motherfucking club. Like with Bell and Omar, I had as a white man, I had been performing as the same out person, okay, for years at this point. I had battled in every hood in this area. I've battled on big stages with corporate folks. I've performed with Hole in the Wall, Keep It Real, rappers. And I'm gonna tell you something. The hood functions. Ain't got shit on some of the gay functions as far as, you know, safety concerns. Like, I take on a hood functionality that. You get me in a room full of queens where it's razors, mace, they but you may it may be hate somewhere. Like that's that that's where I'm like security, you gotta keep an eye on this motherfucker. Okay. But it's like it's it's crazy to me that. Now you can't say, even though I'm not the hugest artist in the world, but the argument of, well, what does a gay rap album sound like? Or how would a gay person express themselves in the confines of hip-hop and make it accessible to the masses? You can't ask that question anymore. I made that record. That's true, you did. I got uh, just a follow-up question, um, just speaking about labels. How important... Some people have different perspectives on this. What's your perspective? How important is the label nowadays? Um, is it still important? Is it, you know, can you just say, forget the label, I'm doing my own thing, I'm putting myself out. This is what people, you know, they're going to accept it, not accept it. I got this great project. How important is the label in, in you know, in 2020? Well, what can the label do for you that you can't do for yourself at this point? 
if I was a regular artist, nothing. Maybe more press, you know, visibility. But that depends on the management team you're with, the publicity PR team you're with. Are you in a magic circle or not? It's a lot of things. For an artist like myself, we're not talking. and I don't want to make myself seem like I'm like this big thing, but I'm not going to shortchange myself either. But you're looking at someone who could make history, could alter the course and create an arena for a perspective that has not been heard yet on a mainstream level. So for artists like me, the label is everything. Not as far as me being able to tour once the world opens back up or sell my merch. Any artist can do that. That's not hard anymore. They've made everything accessible to you. But with an artist like me, you're talking about a legacy artist. You're talking about a history-making artist. It's, it's different than just a, another rapper. Okay? So the label is important. That machine is important. All of that is important. Because you got to get to Grammys. You got to get to VMAs. You got to have that cypher performance with BET. You got to get that BET award. Because whoever makes it, is not representing just one person. You're representing generations. You're representing your fellow comrades who have been in this fight with you. You are you are the first black person to do it. You are Sidney Poitier. You are Holly Berry. You are Oprah Winfrey. You are all of those people. So that that cosign, that exposure, that is paramount. For historical record, not for you being able to put out a record or tour. You could do that now. I can do that now. I was doing it. Being on the cover of Essence, being in on the cover of a double XL, being on the cover of Fader, Pitchfork, and you know, Time magazine, Newsweek. Those are all, and Little Nas X has done pretty much all of that. But for the demographic for which I represent and the demographic, you have to have a person with a sense of history and that, that's going in that room and, and expressing themselves and expressing, how can I put this? You need someone, and I'm going to say you need me to go in there and be able to explain and represent how important this is. That can't be lost on somebody who has no sense of self, no sense of history, and no sense of the struggle that it's taken to get to this point. So guys, the late, long story short, you need the fucking label, at least my type of artist. Hey, I'm sold. <laughs> For real. For real. And you know, I feel I feel like you're at the precipice of making some big moves because your shit's dope. Um, just plainly put, um, it's fantastic. Um, Dapper Dan Midas, it's it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Um, again, hopefully we do this again. We will do this again. I'll just put it out there yeah. in the universe. We will do this again. Um, you know, go check out. Um, 
uh, Ballad of Omar, um, Spotify, have it on Google Music. I'm sure it's all on uh, on all platforms. Um, check out Secretary of Shade, um, Beautiful Gowns. Um, is there any way uh, the fans can contact you or listeners can contact you or look for you on social media? What's your, uh, what's your tag? I made it real easy on every social media platform at Dapper Dan Midas. All one word. Yes. Go Perfect. support him. Go support him. Go buy the merch. Go download the record. It's phenomenal. We're not just capping that up. We want to have this as a platform for artists who we believe in, who we actually like, for poets who we believe in and actually like, and ultimately for just for Black people who we actually like. Um, so right now we have that platform and we were super duper excited to have you on it. Um, and you did not disappoint. Um, I heard the album on Friday, Saturday morning when I went for my little jog, I was on the phone with Brian like, yo, you gotta make this happen, check make this, this album out. I was like, I, you know, I was really like, dang, is this, am I tripping or is this like the hardest record I heard this year? <laughs> so I really, I really had to have, I really had to, I'm like, yo, Brian, like, let me know. Is this like, <laughs> he was like, he was like, no, I listened to the whole album. I'm like, oh, all right. I'm, my ears didn't see me. I'm like, damn, this is hard. Um, so, so go check the good brother out. Um, and yeah, we made it happen fairly quick. That by Saturday, we was talking on the phone and made this happen super duper quick. Go download the album, go check out all the catalog um go support the good brother yeah and we'll have it well we'll have it all up on our description on the podcast and yeah keep it rocking thanks yes. thanks again and um you can find us on facebook at the village healing and writing circle for men of color you can also check us out on instagram the black mental village podcast the black m-e-n-t-e-l-l village podcast on ig um yeah thank y'all for listening Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. 
All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.